Good afternoon. Welcome to the Helix Center. I'm Gerald Hurwitz. I'm the Associate Director at Helix. And I want to welcome all, you all today to this very interesting uh, roundtable we have with some very distinguished participants on the permanence and impermanence of mathematical concepts. Uh, let me introduce you to the uh, speakers today, and they will kindly raise their hand when I mention their name. First is Michael Harris, who is professor of mathematics at Columbia University, and before that he held positions at Brandeis and the University of Paris Diderot. He obtained his PhD in 77 from Harvard University under the direction of Barry Mazur, a name that should be familiar to you shortly. He was organized, he has organized or co-organized more than 20 conferences, workshops, and special programs in this field of number theory. I'm going to go on because there's such a long list of accomplishments. We'll move to our next participant, Natalie Sinclair. She is Distinguished University Professor at Simon Fraser University in the Faculty of Education. She is co-editor of Mathematics and the Aesthetic, New Approaches to an Ancient Affinity, and What is a Mathematical Concept. She has also led the development of two multi-touch apps for arithmetic learning called Touch Counts and Touch Times. Jared Weinstein is a professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at Boston University, where he has worked since 2011. He studies number theory, which is ultimately the study of the whole numbers and their properties, but which links promiscuously with practically every other mathematical subject. Um, a New York native, he received his PhD from UC Berkeley in 2007. Barry Mazur is a mathematician at Harvard University who has often taught courses in the history of science and philosophy. His books include Imagining Numbers, particularly the square root of minus 15, yes, that's part of the title of the book, uh, have prime numbers and the Riemann hypothesis written with William Stein on, in, on Cambridge University Press. And he is edited with Apostolo, Apostolos de Oxidus, the book of essays, Circles Disturbed, the Interplay of Mathematics and Narrative. Lastly, we have Alma Steingart, who researches the interplay between politics and mathematical rationalities. Steingart's second book, Manuscript, Accountable Democracy, Mathematical Reasoning, and Representative Democracy in America, 1920 to now, examines how mathematical thought and computing technologies have impacted electoral politics in the United States in the 20th century. Focusing on the census apportionment, congressional redistricting, ranked voting, and election forecasts, she investigates how uh, changing computational practices from statistical modeling to geometric geometrical analysis insinuated themselves into the most basic definitions, definitions of fair representation of the American electorate. In her previous book, Axiomatics, Mathematical Thoughts and High Modernism, Steingart ex excavates the influence of axiomatic reasoning on mid-century American intellectual thought. So with all of that, welcome everyone and welcome to our panelists. Well, I thought I would start by setting the tone and hoping that people will immediately uh, change direction. But this is, uh, this is uh, at least how I was thinking about the, the topic. Uh, 
the title Permanence and Impermanence of Mathematical Concepts, uh, developed through a conversation among uh, several of us. And let me, uh, I'm, I'm, let me I'm going to quote uh, from an essay by Katherine uh, Goldstein, who has devoted much of her work to showing that mathematical, the, the notion that mathematics deals with uh, timeless uh, concepts uh, is limited, that, uh, that, that view. He said, uh, mathematics is the art of giving the same name to different things, wrote Henri Poincaré at the very beginning of the 20th century. But the view of mathematics encapsulated by this, that it deals somehow with sameness, has also found its way into the history of mathematics. Uh, in the popular genres of the history is hidden the idea that despite changes in symbolism, despite the use or not of figures, etc., despite the presence or not of proofs, some mathematical thing is indeed the same. And the rest of the essay, uh, she develops uh, reasons to, uh, to, to question that, that assumption. And um, that's one starting point. And I, I'm, I should say maybe my motivation is, uh, comes from living through a period when, the, when certain notions with which I've been working during much of my career are being uh, uh, substituted by other notions. And the question is whether they are really the same, whether the concept survives, or whether somehow the way of thinking about them being so different has changed the, the, the nature of the concept. But let me just uh, give you a few quotations, because this, 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 this uh, uh, reactions to this are not always uh, tranquil. So here's a well-known uh, quotation uh, from Carl Ludwig Siegel, responding, speaking for the past. Just now, Lang has published another book oh, yeah. on algebraic numbers, <laughs> which in... The, <laughs> Barry didn't want me to. What? Uh, didn't want, he didn't want to include this in the, uh, in the, uh, in the blurb, I think. <laughs> uh, which, in my opinion, is still worse than the former one. I see a pig broken into a beautiful garden and rooting up all flowers and trees. So that's, uh, that's the, past, the voice of the past. And on the other, uh, on the other hand, the uh, voice of the future... Uh, this is Chevalet speaking within Bourbaki. I'm going to translate it loosely. I uh, wonder, I ask myself whether this mass of the most the methods, the most écroulé et pisseuse, uh, which I'll translate, uh, is actually not a practical joke by the other members of Bourbaki. This is a criticism of a, of a draft of a book. And Ecule Pisseur, which I would like to translate as uh, flat-assed and uh, piss-stained, uh, is that an appropriate translation? <laughs> translation? Is, uh, is, 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 is a characterization of the old way of thinking. Yeah. And uh, this, is, this appears apparently in some internal Bourbaki documents. It very, very rarely got it, made it into print, although I found a few, a few examples. So, with that in mind, what's one more? Uh, somebody who saw this, this announcement, the announcement of this, uh, wrote to me and said, somebody who was just turned 60, said, I'm often reminded of what another colleague who was in his 50s told me at last year's summer school on our, on our, on our, uh, on our branch of mathematics, that he must be happy to be over 60 and not to have to worry about 
moduli stack of G bundles. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that that was in, that was inspired by this by the title of this. Uh, so I guess I'll just open it up. Anybody else? You just reminded me that I want to have this pet, pet idea of writing uh, something about. You would think that reviews of mathematical papers will be boring, but it's all full of gems like the one that you read. So I'll just, I'll just, I'm just sorry, I just want to put it out there, but yeah. yeah. I actually wrote a paper on some of reviews of mathematical, thanks to Michael who <laughs> shared them with me, but was not supposed to share them with me. So. Oh, these, these were secret internal, secret reviews, internal of a, reviews of a, of a journal, but yes, with the, names, with the names removed. Yes. So what could account for all this heat? <laughs> You're the ones who would, <laughs> you would answer that. No, really, right? As you say, folks think of mathematical reasoning and mathematics itself as being dry, and just one thing being named as being, that's the same thing as this, A equals B. And yet, people are getting angry and having potential fistfights over it. How can that be? Well, it might be one thing that the word the same doesn't mean anything. <laughs> that is to say, if you are as a old friend of mine once said, <clears throat> go to any important word in the dictionary and follow it through, and you discover a circular loop. So, so what does it mean for uh, two mathematical concepts to be the same? I mean, let's throw it out. <laughs> what does it mean? Yeah. You know, my nephew asked me by text the other day, why does 0.9 repeating equal 1? And it really brought me back to when I was his age, he's 12, and I was having a really, let's say, spirited argument with another classmate. Like, we were really into math. So you say, like, why do, why, how could there possibly conflict when it comes to something like math? But there was, because we just couldn't agree on what these numbers meant and even what the equal sign in 0.9 repeating equals 1 meant. And now, as an adult mathematician, I look back at that moment, and this, this very thing, and lots of things like it, are invitation, invitations for someone to discover what uh, the basis of the real number system is. And you know what? You can throw away some of those hypotheses, and throw, so throw away, change some of those axioms, and then maybe it's not true, or maybe there's numbers less than one, but greater than all rational numbers, it's less than one, and so forth. Um, and you can discover new things this way. But somehow, I don't really know why, people uh, like me when I was 12 thought that math was really just one thing. Math is math. It does not change. It is eternal. And I think that most folk intuitions about what math is go along those lines. And certainly, if you get an education in math uh, up through high school, that's, that's kind of what you come away with. But it's maybe not just a folk understanding of math, I think, in, um, I think to the essay by Giancarlo Rota about um, this desire for, for, for permanence. For, it, it's much more exciting if you think that what you've thought of or created is going to always be there. And that's part of, like, given that we're here in the Psychoanalytic Institute, that feels like an important part of the experience of mathematics, of having this feeling that you've created something that is always there. That then it's maybe a little bit more villainous to insist that everybody else have exactly the same idea you, you do through schooling. But I think it's both the, something that I, again, this is not, I'm not a practicing mathematician, I'm an historian, so I, I 
know, I, my work is quite different, but it's something that I noticed when I read a lot of mathematicians writing about this feeling. It's not just that what you, um, what I kind of discovered, it's not just about your, what you created that has come a kind of permanence, but what you, with it, what you have, the concept that you have worked on is actually linked all the way down. There is this feeling that the need to say that you one can, if you want to do the work, um, see your work as a continuation all the way, you know, all the way to Euclid. You, you should be able to somehow, you know, the, the, this is, the, this is, it's actually, it's uh, some of your language of kind of this idea of a continued conversation, right? That there's, that math is this constant uh, conversation uh, that one can be, you know, it's again, this feeling that you can trace it all the way back there as well. So mm -hmm. both future and kind of past looking as well. Mm -hmm. I like the idea that mathematics is also a totally subjective and personal activity, which is sort of what you were moving towards, you know. Um, I, I know it because I began as a topologist, and I felt I had real training, if you want, in visualizing not in three steps. Pretty good. But I had no idea that it's... Um, it's a training, and it's personal, and it can come and it can go. So as I moved from that activity to other mathematical activities, I could see the recession <laughs> of the you know of the intensity of uh, of intuition of knots in in my conception. Now, I can't imagine that this doesn't happen to absolutely any mathematician. And so, to what extent do concepts remain the same? Well, they can remain the same in the, as things out there, but they're not going to remain the same as inner felt experiences. As for knots, there was a huge revival or in knot theory in the, starting in the mid-80s and lots of new techniques that had, nobody had ever considered were related to knots, uh, were introduced and changed the direction. So do you think the knots are still the same knots? Uh, the concept of knot is the same, having introduced these, these relations to, to other things that get knotted. Well, since I'm pushing the subjectivity of mathematical <laughs> research, of course I don't. I think it's, it, um, it depends on um, <clears throat> one's inner, inner experience. Should we explain to the listeners what a knot is or what knot theory is? Okay, a knot is you, you're in this room and you imagine a piece of string that is knotted in the usual sense, but the two ends of the string are finally joined. So if you're uh, follow, an ant following that knot, you can go along a circular path forever. Um, but you're allowed to take this piece of string and move it however you want and try to see if it looks different. For example, one possible knot is just a string going around in a simple circle. That's usually called the unknot because it's unknotted. Um, now, if you can move one of these strange trefoily structures um, 
which intertwine with itself as you can move it continuously without tearing anything, but move it so that it finally somehow gets unraveled and becomes uh, looking like that circle. It's called the unknot. And so knot theory is a study of uh, classification of the manner in which these uh, curved um, pieces of string joined at their ends can be transformed, can be moved continuously from one to the other. And of course, since the mathematicians, they, we mathematicians tend to think of uh, string as having absolutely no <laughs> Uh, cross-section, uh, as uh, Euclid did. Euclid's definition too of book one is um, a line is breadthless length. Well, yeah, I think a lot of people would find it surprising that that such a thing is mathematics at all. It doesn't have numbers in it, it doesn't have functions in it, but it absolutely is. And people have, some people are career not theorists, right? Right. It's a good encapsulation of what mathematical inquiry can be. Uh, Barry just laid out some definition, what a knot is, and then the rules regarding how that definition works. You're allowed to deform knots continuously in space, but not ever cut them. And then one lays out the questions. If I draw a knot, is it possible to prove that the knot is or is not the unknot? Yes. Uh, this is a good flavor for what mathematicians do. Yeah. So how does it matter to you as a mathematician whether mathematics is um, permanent or, or not in, in, in your description of mathematical practice just there? Oh, well, oh, there's a lot to that question. Sometimes we are just stuck on a problem and new tools need to be developed to solve it. And um, then those new tools might be revolutionary. Um, well, so you're I, saying I, that it's important to you that it's um, that mathematics changes; otherwise, you wouldn't be able to hope that there would be a new tool that would um, help help you solve your problem. Yeah, perhaps. Um, for instance, I don't know about imaginary numbers. I mean, let's try to keep it a few centuries ago so that it doesn't get too technical, right? At one point, they just didn't exist, or people thought they were absurd, impossible worthy of derision. I mean, we call them imaginary numbers after all. It's like a vestige of the fact that someone thought they were absurd. Uh, but they're incredibly useful. <laughs> I mean, they're useful for the sciences. They're useful for physics, like the laws of quantum mechanics governing how stuff moves at a very small uh, scale. Uh, you, it's required to use complex numbers to study these things. So, I mean, one simple answer to the question of why math has to change is so that developments like these can happen. But that's about change, and yeah. it's less... So people could say, yeah, okay, new concepts come along, but mm. isn't it a different question about whether, once they've been invented, no matter what crazy word they were given, do they change after that? Are they always the same? I don't know. Are revolutions in math really like revolutions in the other sciences, like we used to think the sun revolved around the Earth, and now we know the Earth revolves around the sun, so the old theory is just dead. But if we take Euclidean geometry and we relax, 
One of its axioms so that you get non-Euclidean geometry, which, by the way, kind of describes how space-time works. Is Euclidean geometry gone? No, not at all. It's still there. So it somehow math changes, but it doesn't really like bury its old concepts. I think they're still around. They get added on like a big tower. I think that's a, well, a nice example because uh, just to take not the whole thing of non-Euclidean geometry, but a triangle, which um, we've known about for a long, long, long time. When non-Euclidean geometry comes along, we have a very different idea of triangle that emerges even just visually, but also in terms of wait, what does it mean to have three sides? And then maybe it's that that changes backwards our original idea of triangle. So our original idea of triangle gets um, improved or multiplied by this new understanding of triangle that we have. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you come so far from your intuitions when you learn in school that the sum of the angles of a triangle has to be 180 degrees. You get tested on it. But what about a huge triangle imprinted on the surface of the Earth so that the curvature of the Earth matters? Guess what? You sum up the angles and you get, oh no, is it more? Than, <laughs> really on more the spot. Than more. More. <laughs> I'm going to be tested on this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, just to help you imagine it, if you, drew, if you connect the North Pole to two points on the equator, which are 90 degrees apart, it could have a triangle that's got three 90-degree angles. So, but then you go back to your old geometry, and you realize, oh, I've sort of been liberated from the old rules, and that's a kind of a wonderful, um, liberating feeling. That's it. I mean, it's kind of the excitement of math is kind of progressing this way through ever, um, mm, yeah, ever more general concepts. Alma, as a historian, how does it matter to you whether math? I think for me, it's just a question of how math. I've mostly been thinking about how mathematicians are thinking about it, like what, what is both how they're thinking about it and how has that impacted mathematical practice over over time. Those the kind of sort of question that I've been trying to understand. There's there's an article that I really liked that was published in uh, in the 1960s by, uh, which to me kind of gets to exactly the, the question of this panel, which is, so it's an article that was published by a very famous mathematician, Richard Courant. Um, and the title of the article is, is called Mathematics in the Modern World. The entire idea of this entire, is the article is to, it was in Scientific American, it was public facing, the idea was, let's explain to the public, to the kind of broader public, what mathematics is today, because mathematics is different now in the 1960s. And the, and the article itself, and all the article in that journal, you know where they start? With Egyptian mathematics. So the title is Mathematics in the Modern World, but everything starts in the Egyptian. So it's all a story of progression, uh, how things, exactly what we're talking about right now, everything changes. But the underlying kind of sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken assumption is that there is an essence. That there is an essence that stays the same. And that, to me, it's like to understand what is it for a mathematician and why, why is it important, right? Why is it important for a practicing mathematician to have this idea of that there is, that there is some sort of essence, um, even if it's not well-defined, not something that anybody can explain exactly what the essence of a number is. Uh, why is there still... Uh, uh, a need, maybe a need is not the right word, uh, to hold on to this idea, right? Mm -hmm. Why would you not start a mathematics in the modern world with, here's what's happening right now? And I think that's a common idea. I mean, I'm, I use this as an example because I really like it. But I, I think you can probably find a contemporary 
um, accounts, they will do the same thing. They will start somewhere, they will try to explain something that's happening today by going back you know, X number of years. And I, and I, I myself am struggling with this. I mean, you know, it's, it's a question. That's mm -hmm. the, the driving question to try and understand. Mm -hmm. Why is that the case? Because you don't see it. I think it's true that you see it less in, in, other, in other fields, in other fields of science as well. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you were asking about knots. Do you think that, then that knots are the same? You were asking various. So it's like we can throw the question mm -hmm. back at you. I'm not a, a knot theorist, but I noticed that both Barry and Jared defined knots in 2023 the same way they would have been defined in uh, 60 years earlier. So in that sense, that definition, so the definition has not changed, but does that mean that the concept hasn't changed? Because it's not, because the, uh, the, the, the uh, without using a word like essence, the, uh, the relation, uh, the practical relation of mathematicians to knots has changed immensely because they, uh, you start, if you were to learn knot theory, you know, after the, you go past the definition, then the first notions uh, that you study are not the same as the ones that were studied 60 years ago because of all of these uh, introductions of algebraic methods uh, from in the 1980s, starting in the 1980s. And so uh, I do not have, uh, I, uh, don't, I don't see how I could make a, uh, a, give you a coherent answer to that question. But, uh, but, uh, but Anna, you're, you're, you're using the word essence as something that's in, in itself ungraspable, mm -hmm. but while it's the center of gravity of this uh, concept, which may actually be changing in everybody's viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. but but it itself is un, ungraspable. Ungraspable, un, undefinable, un, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's the that's the, yeah that's part of the. But the, the quotes you, the, the things you quoted at the beginning, and then the rest of the discussion makes me wonder, why is this permanence and impermanence in mathematics? Why don't we ask ourselves? I never heard somebody say permanence and impermanence in genetic studies, permanence and impermanence in biochemistry. In other words, that feeling of uh, almost finiteness or closeness doesn't really occur to one in quite a lot of other fields. So what is it about mathematics that makes those people you quoted react so strongly? And why is this subject one of interest? Well, you know, you would say, of course, mathematics is going to continue to develop forever. So why is this a question in mathematics? It's different from the other sciences in that, at least formally, it's not connected to anything in the physical world. That might be one easy way of answering the question, why don't we? But that was not historically Of course not, yeah. So, right, so as you mentioned, mathematics didn't used to be thought of as something un right. separated from the physical world. I mean, it was geometry, which literally means measuring the earth. Or, right, but the way we think of it now is, well, maybe that's why, mm, People defend uh, its permanence just because it's supposed to be divorced from anything in the world. It's supposed to be inherent in logic itself, so it somehow can't change. Um, I think it's related to the fact, too, that um, we keep, we're still teaching um, in schools mathematics that's been around for 2,000 years. 
using technology that's been around for a thousand years and symbols. <laughs> it's just like in any other one of the school disciplines, they've sort of caught up to, to you know, people read novels of today, not just the novels of the past. But is not a part of the initial appeal to future mathematicians. You know, Jared, what you were mentioning, the debate over 0.9 repeating in one. I think, is it possible that initially this sort of platonic version of math, that it is completely fixed and infinite and permanent, that's part of its initial appeal? And then as we go along, as mathematicians, you go, oh, it's not exactly, that doesn't work out so well. Yeah. I, you know, I think a mathematician working on mathematics always, I can't, not always, sometimes, at least once, wobbles between a totally platonic sense, it's out there, it's constant, it's permanent, and I'm going to understand it. And that's the platonic view, and then there's the Kantian view, that um, I am sort of dealing with my own intuitions, space and time, and I'm using that to represent perhaps things out there, but those things out there have no name. They're sort of like the essences of Alma. Yeah. And then there's another view that refuses to dichotomize between those oh, two. Oh, yeah. Well, that's why I said wobble. Mm, OK. <laughs> I, I, I think one wobbles. Uh -huh. And I, I, I feel it, too, that, hey, anyway. There's yeah. a famous uh, um, philosopher, uh, Hirsch's, uh, uh, phrase, which is mathematicians are Platonists during the week and mm -hmm. uh, and formalists during the weekend. So, <laughs> but that's still dichotomized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the yeah. middle position? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm definitely a wobbler myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very appealing to think of a mathematical essence and mathematical progress is just getting closer and closer to understanding what the true thing is, like what a true triangle is, let's say. But also, doing math can feel like writing poetry. Like, mm -hmm. there's a beauty to it. It makes you feel good talking about it. Uh, builds community. And is there like a, is it, was there an essence underneath a Shakespeare sonnet? Or no, it's an act of human creativity. So I'm definitely wobbling between these two extremes all the time. Let's turn to the triangle and imagine the first person uh, <laughs> who realized that a triangle was not just uh, an object by itself, but was one of a whole family of polygons. You know, this was, uh, and you know what, and many of the things you could say about triangles, you could also say about polygons, like it has the same number of corners as it has uh, sides, for example. You know, that was, a, that was, and so then, then comes, I'm thinking about, of course, about, about this, 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 uh, 20, 23 mathematics, but then, then, uh, so then the triangle, is it the same object as it was when it was just a triangle, when now it's one of a, of a family of, of similar objects? And then you can say, and then somebody realizes that there are three dimensions. And instead of just looking at two-dimensional figures, you can look at three-dimensional figures, and then much, much later, there are n-dimensional figures, and you could, you could do topology, and, 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 uh, and everything you were saying about the triangle, well, you can still learn about triangles 
in, uh, in, in high school, but maybe the purpose of learning about triangles is to prepare you uh, to do topology when you, know, when you grow up. And this is the whole of mathematics is constantly growing up in the sense that, as Jared says, one is going to find that the essence of a triangle is not to be just something with three sides, but to be one of un, uh, un, 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 unlimited range of figures in geometry and of all kinds of geometry. And uh, there is a drive, which is not, I don't know if this is one of the seven drives you were mentioning before, to generality, to, 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 to uh, stop thinking as, this is this quotation, the French quotation, uh, was about thinking about in, in what this subject matter was in a limited way as opposed to in the most general way possible. That's an expression that was uh, characteristic of the Bourbaki group in particular, taken to extremes, but it's uh, in asking about the permanence of the concept, it, when it changes in its level of, uh, of uh, generality, does that mean it was revealed to have been all along uh, something that was only uh, discovered millennia after it was first considered, or is it a different object at these two different uh, ends of the, of the historical process? One thing, you could even go further back from triangle to um, the number five, as in our little abstract, where um, I guess people may have started with uh, the uh, descriptive gesture, the adjective, five cows, five stones, and the great <laughs> discovery or creation or invention is to nounify that uh, adjective. And all of a sudden there is something that can be studied in its own without the stones or the cows as a uh, an artifactual aid. <laughs> that that even uh, that's in the same uh, spirit as your triangle, but must have occurred earlier. I think it, I think that that sort of thing must be the breakthrough for mathematics, <laughs> some real discovery that you can nounify that adjective. Well, that was a breakthrough, but. In retrospect, was it a good thing? <laughs> maybe, maybe it would have been better to have the five cows and, yeah, yeah. and the five rabbits. And the... Well, I think six cows could... is actually better. <laughs> what? Six cows are better than five. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> but now, I'm wondering about this, just, this sort of trend towards abstraction and increased generality in mathematics. And that seems to be, OK, that's one of the things you might list under essence of mathematics, if you try to generate a list of possible um, criteria. Um, how could it be that with that movement, which includes early, the, the early adoption of Platonism within math, because that seems, what, what is five if it's disconnected from objects, if not something Plato would say, you know, in heaven? How did that lead to where we are today, where people say, oh, wait, 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 we're not right about that. Does anyone care to respond to that one? 
Well, just I think it depends a little bit on your theory of um, learning <laughs> and or knowing. Uh, and uh, I think you could say um, that there is an essence uh, to five, but that's taking five to be like a thing that exists out there somewhere. Nobody has been able to say where yet, so there's that. Um, but we could take a little bit more of a probabilistic view of what five is, which is basically all of our experiences that we have each had about of five. And in all of those experiences, which include this one here with all of you people here sitting down, um, that, that is an instantiation of five that will be quite different than the one that I had when I turned five years old, but that is also an instantiation of five. And all of these multiple instantiations of five that I have will have some commonalities and some re repeated patterns that sort of get more and more engraved over time. But that doesn't mean that, the, that I'm going to forget all of you here the next time I think of five, because <laughs> you're still there. You just might not be part of like the most repeated pattern that I have. And one of our urges, I think, in the seven urges is to be able to communicate with each other. And so I'm, I'm checking out with Barry, like, what are our common experiences of five? We would like to be able to share something about five. And we'll have some. Not all of them will be the same. But that's the basis on which we are able to talk about generality or, or abstraction is on that sort of reduced set of overlapping and also um, probabilistic and maybe even quantum experiences of five. And geometric, of course. And geometric, yeah. But don't you think there's a tension with, with, for a mathematician on the one hand um, to think about concepts exactly in the same way that you were just describing, kind of experiential, practice-based, uh, uh, the way you learn about it. And on the other hand, there is this need in mathematics to define things, right? To come up with a great right, mathematician needs to define their concept. Um, and there, it seems to me that those two, um, uh, those two uh, desires, somewhat, somewhat understanding of desires, are, are operating somewhat at odds with one another, right? And one had to keep the concept uh, open. And, and on the other hand, mathematicians desire often to, we need a definition, right? Like you, you, I mean, you will tell me, but they, the, the kind of defining concept is foundational to accepting it in the same way. If you can clearly define it, uh, again, it, it will be hard for you then to, to uh, get the rest of the commun community to accept it, no? I mean, this is a question to the mathematicians. I think you just gave a definition of what math is. It's somehow the art of speaking clearly in a way that's unambiguous. I think this is a very unique field in which we can at least attempt to do this when you say five. Uh, well, I could say it's a member of the integer ring, which has such and such property and obeys these axioms, and at least give a definition. And you just gave a definition of knots earlier. That, to me, kind of is what math is. It's this art of definition making. You're setting the rules of whatever game you're playing. But the way you know the, 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 so like the, the, way you know the concept is not limited to the definition, right? So the, the, this is, I think that's what I was trying to get. But there's, the, uh -huh. there's, the, there's some tension between the need to define it and the other hand, on the way to, that you actually come to grasp, uh, the way that one comes to grasp the concept has to do with learning it in all those different ways. Or you can think about a circle as an equation, you can think about a circle as a projection, you can think about a circle as me drawing this, but you come to learn that you can define a circle, but the way you learn the circle is yeah, actually quite Now multiple. I understand, yes. These, these two things really are in conflict, especially when the, in, 
the intuitions precede the formal definitions, mm -hmm. which happens an awful lot. Like with well, the definition yeah. of five has run through uh, a lot of turmoil. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, Yusin uh, uh, Volpin, who was an extreme constructivist mathematician, um, kept uh, trying to put some doubt as to what the initial definition actually of the number five, uh, where one thing, uh, it, it could be the quincunx, that is to say, the four vertices of a square and the central point. And if you think of it that way, well, it's five objects, so the five objects with a certain property. And the minute you think of it that way, uh, Every notion of five objects has some conditional property to it. So that uh, uh, David Hume, I think in the treatise on human understanding, said, um, we can um, identify a number in that He had rather wonderful verbs, but I'm not going to use his vocabulary. Uh, um, in if every unit of the one thing that you think of as that number corresponds to a unit of the other thing that you think of as that number, in fact, is acquainted with, is, is one of his terms. <laughs> uh, and if so, then you can pronounce those two sets as equal and um, equal to five if there are five of them. Right, so there's as many people around this table as there are bottles of water. Yeah. There's a, because there's a correspondence, right? One to one. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. That's uh, kind of the modern definition of number it in a sense. It precedes all the modern definitions. Oh, it precedes, uh, it precedes it. It's, mm -hmm. yeah, I see. Yeah. Because maybe there's no progress. Maybe all of the ideas are there all of the time, like a block universe. Yeah. Oh, I love that concept. <laughs> you mentioned the, the term uh, constructivist, or right? Do you want to say a little bit more about that so people? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I, I mean, I can. I don't want to. Okay. Uh, here is how little this man Yasin Volpin believed in infinite or even very large. He was asked, and this is, uh, you can YouTube this, I think. Uh, he was asked, is two a number? He would say yes. Is two squared a number? He would say yes. Is two to the fourth a number? He would say yes. When he gets to two to the eighth, he would say yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so much for the uh, permanence of the notion of number. <laughs> Wait, sorry. Why? Why so resistant to what? that number is not very large? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe he got to two to the tenth. Uh, yeah. Oh. It kept going. It kept going. I, if 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 it's still on YouTube, yeah, I see. It's worth uh, trying to find it. I see. I mean, this is one possible reaction to notions of infinity which challenge people. Like, if, if someone really thinks that 0.9 repeating cannot be one, one of their objections might be like, well, you just can't 
write infinitely many nines. I just reject the whole premise in the first place. Mm -hmm. That is one possible reaction. That's not a crazy reaction either. I mean, philosophers do it. Mm -hmm. This is uh, particularizing certain mathematical uh, uh, concepts or making them specific to a real experience or act, right? Because these are steps, algorithmic steps, right? And you say you can't do 0.9 repeating. No one can do that. <laughs> Hence, they're not equivalent. Right. I mean, I, that's not the mainstream view within math, not at all. We use infinity. There's no branch of mathematics that doesn't engage with infinity in some way. Yeah. Well, Poincaré was a little hesitant. Well, what was he? Yeah. I mean, he was, he was, he was not as, as hesitant as Justin uh, and Volpen, but there was a kind of attempt to, to keep, an attempt to keep to the finite. Mm. No. I mean, there's a moment, historically, there's a, mo there's a particular moment uh, at the kind of end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century that people refer to as the foundational crisis in mathematics, which is this moment that mathematicians and philosophers uh, uh, were rethinking some of the basic concepts, like really kind of asking, what is a number? How do we know what a number is? And, and you know, many, some of the most famous philosophers at the time were thinking about those questions. Um, so I think that, you know, if we had this conversation, you know, if we can go back in a time machine to the 18th century, this conversation would sound differently. We are, the conversation that we are having right now is a conversation that's happened in a way, the kind of post, <laughs> post-foundational crisis. Uh, so are, we think, I think that, the, the way also we talk and just think about those questions changes over time. Um, and the mathematicians that, I think that the way mathematicians were trained at the time were not the same way the mathematicians are trained today. Um, so. With regard to large numbers, I was at a uh, philosophy talk the day before yesterday, and at the time of the foundational crisis, um, before the foundation crisis, people would just just keep counting, and they wouldn't worry about it. But at the time of the foundation crisis, it, uh, the the consensus became that in order to know that you can keep counting, you have to include this among your axioms. And so, at that at that uh, philosophy talk, it was uh, raised. I don't remember who who which philosophers questioned the uh, the 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 validity of the successor axiom, which means to say that after each number there is another number. And they we're arguing whether can you, can you actually have mathematics if you uh, don't, mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if this is not admitted, in which case is it really an axiom or is it just uh, part of what it means to be doing mathematics. So this was, so the number before this crisis was uh, somehow innocent, and then it lost its innocence because you have to uh, you have to add an axiom in order to keep to 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 say make even the most elementary claims about arithmetic, and that's an, another example of whether it's the same concept or, or not. Can you? I ask oh, this yeah. Where is the data coming? Where does the data have to come from in order for the, for mathematical concepts to evolve? Where does the data come from? Uh, well, we gather data in a sort of a funny way. We stare at blank blackboards <laughs> and at our computer screens. Well, I don't want to say only. I have gathered empirical data by writing a little computer program to like test a hypothesis. 
But the funny thing is, is that most of our theorems are true for all inputs, and that could be infinitely many inputs. And so you will never prove such a mathematical statement just by running an algorithm, because you'd have to wait an infinite amount of time to check every case. So instead, our proofs are finite, but they're abstract enough to handle infinitely many cases. And perhaps the question is not where the data, where the incentive comes from. So we are like we're in a group of mostly pure mathematicians. I mean, there have been some mathematical development has come along because there are uh, there are incentive outside incentive that somebody had to uh, figure out some kind of new physical theory or you know that ideas in math came into mathematics because of trying to solve ideas in the physical world or trying to solve. So it's those necessities of uh, that the problem arises, not in one's brain, but arises at, in the world that brings, like in trying to solve those problems, that's a new problem. Maybe it's a new, but I, I think for pure mathematicians, one might argue differently. I'll give a, an example, a historical, simple historical example, which is uh, roots of, of polynomials. So. Uh, very, very long time ago, uh, I don't know how long ago, probably as far back as the Babylonians, it was the formulas for, for, the, for the roots of a quadratic polynomial were already uh, understood that you could write down B uh, squared or B, B squared minus 4AC, <laughs> the, that, that, that formula, the quadratic so formula. You can, you can blame the Babylonians for right. inflicting so, memorization so that's of a, this formula. So there's a, there was actually, uh, I think there was a, an op-ed I, I read once, why, why should uh, high school students have to learn the quadratic formula? You know, they've got their calculators. And it's by somebody who, was, who had a, it was a professor somewhere. And then, uh, but then came... In the Renaissance, quick succession formulas for uh, cubic uh, roots of cubic equations, and then degree four equations. And you notice that going from cubes to degree four, you've lost the connection to geometry. And so it was a problem to continue this. You know, why would you can that? You know, where would the incentive to continue this come from? But that's you know, it's you could say it's a natural incentive where people people wanted to gain glory. They got glory for the, the, that one cannot imagine now for the uh, degree three and degree four. And then it was turned. It turned out that the early at the beginning of the nineteenth century that you couldn't find a formula. And so at that point, you've got two options. You can just give up. Or you can say, well, that was not really what we cared about. We really didn't care about the roots of these equations after all, all that time. You know, people were, were fighting duels about them, but they were, they were mistaken. In fact, what we wanted to know is just that there are roots, you know, and then you could say there are roots, and then say what, as much as you can about them. And that's the beginning of, uh, you know, that's the beginning of algebraic number theory in some sense. That's part of uh, what we what, what we do. And, and uh, Galois, Galois was the person who created the way of thinking about roots, which is, although it's not the same Galois theory that people teach us, not what Galois, Galois, nobody teaches what Galois actually wrote, for example. But building on that idea of what we care about or what matters, I, I wonder whether, you know, um, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I keep thinking of Piaget. The, um, 
Piaget? No, the philosopher, the ancient Greek philosopher. Oh. No, uh, Plato. Plato. Whether he, sorry, whether he set us up for um, focusing so much on um, objects and existence and uniqueness and identity, and when, um, and not focusing as much on how things are are different and sort of your work on sort of thinking of different ways in which things are the same. And uh, I'm thinking a bit about category theory and how it is not. Um, so much interested in just objects, but in their transformations, how objects are related to other objects. And if we, if we take this category theory idea in mathematics and apply it to our conversations, it's not, maybe the important thing isn't just what these ideas are, but how they relate, how they transform. And that's part of the, the package that's maybe more interesting in the end than is five the same. Maybe the more interesting question is what are all of the ways in which we now relate five to other things? And if we follow um, infinite category theory, we'll eventually get from five to a torus, you know, somehow, because there'll be all of these transformations that will be there, which reduces the um, emphasis on identity. You're, you're moving towards the Wittgenstein view, right? That um, uh, the meaning, well, for him, it would be the language game. The meaning of a word is really, in some sense, uh, nothing much or more than, or at least extremely given by the network of relations that that word has mm -hmm. to all the other words, or the meaning of an object is the network of relations that that object has to all the other objects that are akin to it. Mm -hmm. yeah. In category theory, there is, a, um, there is a statement that says exactly that, uh, Yoneda's lemma. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, I, so I said you're moving toward it. Are you, you you're moving toward, towards that? Or? I don't think of my sign as myself as Wittgensteinian. I... No. Sort of more Whiteheadian, but so okay. I have to think about that a little bit. I mean, I think for Wittgenstein, it is just a language game, That's and I don't see it that way. I see it you as much it more as of a, a language historical yeah. material yeah, sort yeah. of a okay. set of practices. Category theory came up. Would oh. someone like to take a crack at explaining it? Okay, <laughs> oh, me. <laughs> oh, fine, I'll try. Okay, so uh, who am I? I'm Jared Weinstein. I'm a mathematician. I'm from New York. But that's one way of asking that, answering that question. But another way is uh, I'm a brother, I'm a son, I'm an uncle, and so forth. So uh, recognizing that objects don't come in isolation, but rather studying their relations with all other um, objects of a similar type the collection of all objects that have something in common is called a category. Like, it's not used in its colloquial sense. It has a specific meaning. And I think lots of pure mathematicians, maybe all of them agree, this is a fantastic and superior way of talking about things. It's incredibly clarifying. Uh, yeah. The first time um, someone tried to publish a paper on category theory, it was rejected by the journal the um, uh, the editor, who is a great number theorist, actually rejected it, saying um, uh, that that is the most vacuous 
<laughs> paper in mathematics I've ever read. And the author said, that's the point. <laughs> so they, not Carl Ludwig Siegel. What? Not Carl Ludwig Siegel with a pig in it. That was it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Do you know who That's the point. This? What? Do you know McLean. who submitted it? McLean. Uh, someone McLean, McLean and oh. no, it's, it's, and someone else, and we no. always forget. <laughs> but um, not you'll get it. Oh, Allenberg and McLean. It was called abstract nonsense. That's how people refer that's to it. That's right. That's what we call it. We call it abstract nonsense, but it's abstract somehow nonsense. under the hood of so much of what but we do. But the thing about it is that it produces a language, and what's great about this language is that it has only two words. Well, you might say three. The two words are noun, <laughs> verb, <laughs> and uh, composition. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, I, Chomsky would love this, by the way, because he uh, has uh, his notion of syntactic, syntactical grammar. But for him, he thought it was syntax to know that um, subject, verb, object was the initial axiom for uh, what a grammatical sentence consists of, and then you build on it by composition in some way. Right. Well, the noun in category theory is called object. <laughs> the verb in category theory is called morphism. That is, say, transformation from one object to another. But uh, transformation is a loaded word because you would think that you would see it. It's just a label from the point of view of category theory. It's a labeled thing that you uh, label transformation. And just with that and composition, you can express uh, as a language um, essentially any mathematical theory. Not only that, you can make analogies between mathematical theories by taking this structure of, for uh, one theory and seeing that it somehow is mirrored by the comp uh, com uh, the, uh, um, the the same structure for another theory, and so that would identify two theories on the basis of this uh, similarity in terms of these two simple words, this tiny language. Anyway, that's category theory. But the the movement uh, I was asking previously about how abstraction, which is one of the key points of mathematics, has had its own evolution over time. And yet now we've come to the point where people are questioning where does that lead mathematics in general. Is Can you say anything about mathematics in general? Those sorts of questions, it leads us there. So some of the solutions are these, I would say, more pragmatic solutions. I mean, even including Wittgenstein's approach has a sort of pragmatism to it. Right, and the solutions you're suggesting in, the, in this category theory sounds like another instance of that. So this is some sort of pragmatic approach, um, and is that the is that? And then at the same time, axioms are involved in this form of pragmatism, which one might think is different from just sheer abstraction. You think it goes along with abstraction, but in a sense, it allows a form of pragmatism that may be the way math math is going these days. Let me take a stab at this. this uh, so when, once the category theoretic language came in, it became possible 
to read it into the previous literature, or yes. to reread read the yes. literature of the past as if they were talking about uh, categories, in fact. And then in many of the, uh, a lot of the, the, the syntax, the, the, the structure of arguments was common. To, you, know, you could say that the uh, that, uh, category theory generalizes and uh, uh, formalizes a common pattern of mathematical argument. And so that, that, you could say, brings clarity. Now, at the same time, you can take this uh, too far. You can, nobody, as far as I know, is, is going so far as to say that uh, Euclid was really doing category theory. But there was a controversy uh, uh, between historians of mathematics and mathematicians as to whether Euclid did algebra. So the the uh, mathematicians wrote uh, that clearly he was doing algebra because when we can, when we read it we understand it using algebra and historians say no that is an illegitimate uh, uh, projection onto the past and I think even now the majority of mathematicians would agree with the mathematicians of the time and the majority of historians of mathematics would agree with historians so that's a, another example of whether the concept remains. Uh, remain, is permanent or whether it is uh, is evolved because if you reread the the concepts of antiquity in the, which is in the only way you can because this is how you've been trained to 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 read them uh, you're uh, you're no longer able to be in dialogue with uh, with Euclid or, or so so you, do you think that that's the only way you can that you, because it's the only way we can because you've been trained that way so you, oh, that's and, the only way I can let's say I I mean I can also tra train myself to read uh, Euclid in a in a rather in in, in in you know with the the gnomons and everything but you know that would be that would be a a uh, fairly painful mm -hmm. uh, experience and uh, which is why I. I haven't done it, right? What is invested in, as you said, let's take either the example of category theory or the example of the fight whether Euclid had algebra or not. What is invested in arguing for, of rereading the past with that language? Or what's invested in arguing for the, the fact that, it was, that there is algebra? Why is... I think a lot of people argue about it. Yeah, I would think on the part of the uh, the, the mathematicians who were defending that, the, the, it was there are two things. There's first dogmatism because that's what they said, and secondly, they didn't want the historians to tell them what 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 to think, and that's also and that is a very present uh, reaction. I've I've heard uh, mathematicians, very good mathematicians, even some who know the history, saying, "Well, you know, that you really have to be a mathematician in order to understand history." I'm sure you've heard that. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> but, the, but there's the, yeah. politics invested as that's, well, right? That's what I'm trying that's, to get. I that's think that's what you're trying to get at. Go ahead. No, no. Yeah. I, um, it was a question. Yeah, I'm going to hear. Well, just I mean, there, there's the politics of who's, who who invented the idea first. Was it us or was it them? And there's the politics of assuming that we're always moving towards progress. So that like whatever was before was obviously primitive. And what's now is more evolved, and that is a political position because it's about a story of post-Enlightenment society. And I, I think that's very um, relevant to me, why I'm interested in the, as an educator in the question of permanence and impermanence is because I don't want there to be one um, idea or concept of five 
because that really limits the, um, uh, the, the number of people, the diversity of people and of cultures that have access to that as a part of their practice. And so I'm interested in the plurality of five. And in what you said was really difficult, you'd have to like uh, relearn something. Maybe that's what we have to be doing more of, is engaging in this translation of you know, different ways of thinking about five that are hard for us because they're not our natural ways of thinking about five. Anyway, that's what I think teachers are, are uh, being asked to do as um, we move towards more sort of multicultural and culturally sensitive uh, or appropriate education. That, so now that, that can lead in one of two directions, either the direction of uh, constant dialogue among the various uh, interpretations of five, or it could lead in the direction of, of uh, several mutually exclusive uh, uh, and uh, incommensurable versions of five, hard to, hard to imagine, but there are other kinds of mathematics, where, where uh, each, each uh, culture would defend its own uh, <laughs> against, <laughs> against the rival notions. You know, and, uh, I don't think that'll happen because we're way too mixed up already <laughs> as cultures. We don't I think we operate. have the quintessential definition. I see. I see. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> There are uh, interest in numeracy in different cultures, you know, and whether not every, every culture has a sense of number and, and, and how high does it go. And I think actually five may be around where some cultures cut off and beyond that, that's considered many. And I wonder, if you go back to what you were mentioning when you mentioned Kant before, Barry, whether this sort of synthetic quality of these numbers uh, has something to do with how we think about them and how we might be creative about them. One of the reasons to have people have a, a diverse sense of what five means is that it may create uh, the, the, the basis for imagination and for mm -hmm. new ideas. <laughs> there is a five in Kant's literature. <laughs> Uh, and he uses it to a great uh, advantage, I think, for his uh, attitude towards what he called the, the synthetic a priori. So the, the analytic a priori for Kant is sort of tautology, definition. So perhaps uh, uh, 7 plus 1 is 8, wouldn't count as anything uh, other than tautology, because that might be the definition of eight. But he has, in the critique of pure reason, this equation, the only equation he has, seven plus five equals 12. Uh, yeah, seven plus five equals 12. You have to put the five on the other, on the... As the second. As the second one, yeah. You know why. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, that is um, uh, not a tautology for him. That is what he would uh, label as the synthetic a priori. That is to say, it's, it's something that you have to use your own intuitions uh, in order to comprehend. And of course, I, I think the reason why he used five was this. He would say, there's seven, and then he would use his five fingers. Yeah and just count. But um, that itself is a strategy, and there are other strategies for getting this 7 plus 5 equals 12 equation. 
But you need a strategy, and it's not a tautology. Anyway. Well, I'm wondering whether that's where arguments come in, where we appeal to intuition and people have strongly different, that there's room for wobble there. Could be. Well, should we um, open up the floor for questions? If anyone has a question, please come and step up to the microphone. Would five of you please come up to the microphone? <laughs> well, two and then three. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um, as a former high school math teacher, I'm really interested in thinking about how some of these ideas are being passed down to students and what might happen. I must say that when I was a high, when I was a high school math teacher, which was 40 years ago, um, I was very distressed that some of these abstract concepts, which I thought were fascinating, stuff that I had learned in college, um, were absolutely invisible in the American high school math curriculum. And that it was so algorithmically oriented that people had no idea of these things, even though there were very simple examples that could be taught and, exp and followed through so you could get some sense of some of these abstractions, like the idea of a group or a field. And you could see, oh yes, there are all these different arithmetics if because there are many different fields that have the kind of arithmetic structure that we expect of numbers. So where do we stand in that? That we all have a lot of opinions about how to change the high school math curriculum. It's a very controversial topic, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so just to get us started, I think one one uh, thing we have the hangover of the new math right. curriculum. So it's going to be very difficult to introduce anything like group theory or category theory in high school. Can you remind us what was new math? So new math was, uh, I guess it started in the 60s, um, okay, late 50s, and um, rethinking math, um, not so much as arithmetic, but as um, properties of, of, of groups and looking at uh, um, group theory, basically, <laughs> but, but, but using being, some numbers. Yeah, being <laughs> yeah. a very technical thing. Group right. is a very abstract notion, yeah. And... Sub subsequent to developments in, in mathematics and to Bobaki and, and that kind of thing. So that was very difficult. Uh, it was a very um, great idea in some ways, and but in terms of how it uh, played out, was a disaster um, in part because nobody thought to sort of inform the teachers of what that was going to involve. And also um, parents are actually one of the biggest determinants of what school math looks like because they, for some bizarre reason, feel like their kids should go through exactly the same horror that they <laughs> went through themselves. So if the kids aren't learning multiplication tables, there's probably something wrong with what's going on at school. Um, so that, that very arithmetic sort of focus as being like that that's what math is about is, um, what is 
prevalent, I think, in society and expect, part of the expectation of what school math should be about. And then there's like calculus, like that's the, where we're trying to get to all the time because that's the first class that, course that students have to take when they get to university. So everything has to sort of vector towards that, which is a big algebraic apparatus. Then there's the death of geometry. <laughs> Do you have a geometer in your math department? Oh, sure. We've got plenty. We have a whole research group. Like topologists or geometers? Geometers. Sure. Well, sure. sure. <laughs> well, um, yeah. There's plenty of you know, geometers of different stripes yeah. represented. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I just, those are three. I'm sure you have more you want to add. To... Oh, about the high school curriculum? Yeah. Oh, I'm, not, I'm, really, I'm just not a high school educator. I just mm. know that, and this, mathematicians will relate to this, I was out with friends, and I made a new friend who asked me what I did, and I said I was a mathematician. Can you guess the response? Oh, I hated math. With, together with an I'm sorry, as if I was expecting <laughs> every person I know to absolutely adore the subject. Oh, I just hated it. Sorry. Uh, but then after, then they asked, well, what does that entail? And I said, well, I teach. I teach calculus and I teach linear algebra and other things. And then I also do research. I make new math. And the reaction to that was, but hasn't everything already been discovered? Because what is the math education that you learn in high school? It's, um, it's from a few centuries ago, generally. And they kind of is oriented towards you, the student, solving the problem and getting the answer. Like I was looking at what my uh, niece in ninth grade had to study for for her tests. It kind of surprised me. It was all the different centers that a triangle could have. Back to triangles. <laughs> A triangle, I don't know if you knew this, can, has like seven different centers. No, like 3,000. Oh, 3,000. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, my niece had to know about seven of them. <laughs> Those are the important ones. And she had to memorize them, and okay. she had all these different mnemonics for like memorizing uh, how to name the different centers so that she could identify a picture of a triangle with that center mm. and pick Oof. out the name. Mm. That's just not what math is. I am not an expert on this subject. I, what do you think? Yeah. It's that way. What you said, math they teach at school is the same as a long time ago. Why is it that way? I, I guess these things are done by committee and they, it converges on something that no one is happy with. That's yeah. the only explanation. But what kind of subjects are probably done with? Like committees too. What is it yeah. special about math that's happened to it? I think math is also historically has been um, associated with a way of reasoning that you'd learn math, but you actually learn how to reason. So it's not just about learning the math that you're going to learn, but somehow rationality itself is being developed as you study math. So it's all that has historically always been the case. People, that's just there are many examples of that. Um, I think that to some degree there is assumption. I think that it's cumulative in the same way that, I mean, you can't, I think that's what happened with the new math, uh, which there's still the idea that you first need to p teach students what are numbers, how to add numbers, how to, you know, there's certain kind of basic arithmetical 
properties that one needs to learn. Um, and the, one of the famous critique of the new math was, why, it's a book by a mathematician. Um, Martin Gardner has yeah. the why Johnny no, can't why add. Johnny can't add. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking about. Why Johnny can't add, which is the idea. You learn the, the idea of the critique was okay. You taught my son, my child, all of this high, uh, you know, high abstract concept of mathematics, but then my child cannot add. Can't, you, like, get, like my child still like he understands all this number, like all this concept supposedly of the mathematical concept, but cannot just add two numbers. Um, so I think we also have societal expectation of what we as assume. Uh, would we expect, rather, that a child should be able to develop uh, a sort of kind of mathematical concept, mathematical ideas uh, that we kind of expect that a child going through, let's say, elementary school should be able to, to do? Um, Choose the right cell phone plan. <laughs> but more cynically, I mean, math operates in our society as a gatekeeper. So it's, it's uh, the best tool we have so far for deciding who gets to go on to higher education and what field and how much money they get to make after that. So it can cause more anxiety in, in yeah. the students. Is that what you're... Well, that definitely, yeah. 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 Right. It goes back to the idea that it's associated with reason, right? That, yeah. Like that, that, that somehow it's, it's reflect that that's the way that there is no other ways of reasoning or that, that if that's somehow the only way that one can uh, be a... a rational adult is if Barton is can show that. But if it was just reasoning, then Jared could decide the curriculum and we would all think it was really beautiful. But the fact is reasoning is hard to assess. Yeah. So it's much easier to just decide whether the students got the algebraic or the equation right or whether you know you can just check, 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 check. So it's it's a lot more difficult to assess people's reasoning. So I think that combination of, uh, then it becomes not about reasoning actually and about a lot of multi um, memorization. You could also say, to be even more cynical, because it's possible, that it's a training in uh, not questioning authority. If, yeah. you, if uh, the authority is, is vested in the people who control whatever, the mathematics or, 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 or uh, the internet, then, uh, then if you have uh, been trained that uh, the ideal subject, the ideal discipline is one in which there is one answer and you use certain kinds of reasoning to reach that answer, then uh, you will maybe have a harder time developing the habit of questioning uh, mm -hmm. where, where this, the authority for, uh, for decreeing this answer comes from. <laughs> Bye. Sure. I want, I'm, I'm handing you a, a <laughs> yeah. you know, an opening because I, I know you have have uh, written about such things. Yeah, but that's exactly it. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think schooling in general operates that way in large part to sort of uh, train us all to be okay to sit in offices all day and not question authority and contribute to economic growth. I think we have more questions from people online. Yeah. Alex, will you go, ahead, go over to the uh, microphone? Then. Hey, so I'm just the uh, avatar for these online viewers. Um, we have John Sidley's, thank you for this question. We have two, but I'll pick, pick one. Um, so he quotes Henry George uh, Forder, the virtue of a logical, pr oh sorry, not that one. There was a better, wait, hold on, okay. 
They quote Michelle Scioli, hopefully I didn't bungle that name, Michelle uh, Scioli on Kant's critiques, the aesthetic feeling of beauty is a way of feeling life, not my life alone, but life as it is shared by humanity. So how are human maths or mathematics and beauties co-evolving? Oh, good question. Oh, that's good. <laughs> oh, it's yours, Barry, isn't it? Well, how, how does mathematics and beauty evolve? Is that it? Is yeah, that the that's question? Right, yeah. That's the basic question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> the title of one of my books was quoted, particularly the square root of minus 15. Now, Cardano, 16th century, discovered he had to, to solve uh, cubic equations, had to uh, involve himself with square roots of negative numbers. And he said, um, here's this computation. He wrote, here's this computation. Uh, and uh, dismiss, and the computation needed a square root of minus 15. And he said, dismissing mental tortures go through this computation, even though you're going to make use of the square root of negative numbers, and you'll end up with an answer which you can then check. Okay? So uh, he viewed, or he thought his readers would view imaginary numbers as mental tortures. On the other hand, uh, you can go to anyone in the, so to speak, modern world, including um, Feynman in one of his books, where he sort of makes sort of absolute, um, pays homage to imaginary numbers, to the square roots of minus uh, positive numbers. And um, uh, so there's a, and the beauty of it, now, there has to be some evolution going from Cardano to uh, the modern world, and the evolution will be in terms of its, uh, uh, the perception of beauty in, in, in some sense in the same object. Is that? I mean, you just played the same thing during the conversation today when we said that uh, when you described category theory, you all talked about how incredible it is and how that's the language. Although, as Barry yourself discussed when it came about, people said this is just nonsense. nonsense. So there's, yeah. there's a yeah. well, the nonsense is a is an intellectual nonsense. The Cardano, yeah. he hated this number, <laughs> and nowadays, and he hated it because he thought it was ugly, mental tortures, and yet, yeah. One of the definitions of uh, of beauty is a sort of. Uh, our appreciation of beauty is a free play of the imagination. And I think in some sense that, that comes in here. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Quite literally. Natalie, do you yeah. want to say something about the current state of mathematics, aesthetics of mathematics? Um, not so much, just to highlight. I mean, I think um, what, what you said, there's this interplay between sort of uh, personal um, feelings of, of, of beauty and mathematicians differ, differ really broadly in that. Like some people really love to find unity in things and some people really love to find the exceptions, the anomalies, the counter um, examples and, and all of that. And 
mathematics set. So there's different sort of uh, personal aesthetic preferences, let's say. And then there's disciplinary ones that um, I think are more broadly shared, and you see this in the arts as well, um, that change over time when there's some shifts, like in category theory that you were just describing, or around um, um, irrational numbers. Um, and I think that uh, those all operate um, to, in ways that um, interface with society. Um, so how uh, there could be some um, aesthetic value or beauty in being able to help people outside of mathematics understand mathematical ideas. How? What about that? that? Wouldn't that be exciting? <laughs> or to show um, some of the dangers of taking certain abstractions too far and what choices do we make in mathematics um, to rein in those dangers. Uh, Whitehead was always very careful mm -hmm. to say, beware of your abstractions. They're dangerous as soon as you forget mm -hmm. what the contingency is, you're in a lot of trouble. So how is mathematics taking that to heart? In, in that, that could be a disciplinary thing or it could be an individual thing. But it, it matters, I think, to broader society as well, in which case it becomes political because it's about who gets excluded and included in mathematics. Well, uh, thank you. And then the next one uh, by a viewer whose YouTube channel is written in Arabic characters. I, I can't read that, I'm sorry, but thank you for viewing and for this question. So what they wrote is, what is the relationship between the permanence and impermanence of mathematical concepts with the permanence and impermanence of mathematical methods? And then they sort of reference as an example computer verified proofs for methods. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> well, certainly, I'm not going to uh, comment on computer verified proofs right now, but certainly there does seem to be uh, one of the motivations for that is to fix the meaning of the concept once and for all. If it has been translated into a, uh, into a program, and the program has been run and, and checks, then that means uh, two things. First, that the, the argument is valid according to the system that's been programmed. And secondly, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to think about it anymore because, because, because there it is. It will be there. That, that's permanent. If the, if, the, if, the, if the language in which it's written is, is, is permanent. Um, of course, that you can see that as a hindrance to, uh, to evolution because the, uh, uh, if you were to adopt a different uh, framework, a different kind of language, and the different languages uh, available with which people work are not mutually, uh, uh, don't, don't communicate with each other, or don't have the same, uh, the same theorems, in fact, then if you, but if you fix one, if you fix the one that belongs to, uh, to uh, Elon Musk, for example, because he's, he's uh, He's, he's, decided, he's hired the person who is planning to solve mathematics. So if that's, the, if that's, the, uh, if that's the, the version of mathematics, then you can imagine that, that the, the future, uh, there will be, everything will be permanent, uh, like in, in the way that death is permanent. It's, uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's one reaction, but maybe there could be others as well. Anything else? Anyone else? No. Oh, yes, please. Do you have questions? Or no, no, no. I mean, I'll, I'll keep an eye. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I wonder, I'm, first I must confess that I, I came to, um, to appreciating the beauty of mathematical thinking relatively late, this inner room, but I came through it through music, and I wonder what you all have to say about this, because I feel like um, mathematical thinking is very much like composing in music, and to, to get to the number five, if you combine five violins or five trombones, it still, it will sound very different. And th both of the fives, if you will, have very different properties. And I wonder if we in education just let students uh, recompose done compositions, or whether we give them the tools to compose their own and whether we have this aesthetic of um, very much like this break between classical music and modern music, mm -hmm. if we're now at, in a point in life where we can um, define a new aesthetic, but through play rather mm -hmm. than uh, driving rules. Um, thank you for that. I, um, I think uh, th there was in the early 90s a book called uh, The Art of Problem Posing by... Um, oh, yeah, no. No, um, Problem Posing, not Problem Solving. Oh. That was the important part. <laughs> the, uh, by um, Stephen Brown and um, uh, Marion Walter. And um, it was specifically to get to this idea that uh, all of math is basically about, you solve my problem. <laughs> okay. And so it's a bunch of exercises that somebody else came up with. And you, it's just like if you had to play everybody else's music. And actually, most mathematicians would agree that one of the most creative parts of math is coming up with a problem, posing a problem, because yeah. um, you get to set the terms. And then you get to decide what uh, you know, a solution is. So that book was giving teachers tools to how to encourage um, their students to pose uh, their own problems. In, and when you do that, you end up sometimes um, encountering mathematical ideas that definitely don't have, are not in the curriculum and could be even beyond uh, you know, their, their level of understanding. But not always. There's ways you can sort of manage that in the classroom. And there, there are definitely a lot of people who um, took that up and took it seriously as a part of humanizing part of mathematics and showing kids that, like those kids who did that, would not be surprised that there's new mathematics because, right. you know, they were making new mathematics. Yeah. Right. And, um, but again, it's something that's a bit hard to do as a teacher if you're given a curriculum that you have to stick to on the one part, and on the other part, if you're not feeling very confident about what math is going to come out of this, because it's hard sometimes for teachers to say, I don't know, sorry. Um, so it sometimes doesn't work very well, I think, with our educational system. But I think there's a, a lot of pockets of that that you can find. Um, people doing you know, music and mathematics, doing art and mathematics, uh, um, going out in the land and doing mathematics there. But they're, they're small pockets, and they tend to be at the elementary school level where the stakes are a little bit lower. Yeah. Um, so I have a question that's directly related, but just, uh, uh, just a few ideas. Um, uh, when you talked about the new math, you reminded me. So I'm Mark Mitten. I'm a magician, and I have a lot of friends in math through the Martin Gardner Network. And um, so... Um, 
I remember I'll, taking a long walk in Princeton with the late Joe Cohn. And um, he said, you know what's terrible? He said, I knew all the guys that created the new math. I knew them each personally. And I know that each one fell in love with math through geometry. Mm -hmm. Right? And so I thought of that. Then I thought of, uh, of your question just now. I had the honor of um, supporting Barry student Manjul Bhargava at Princeton in a math and magic class. And at one point, he turned to the kids. He goes, you know, the steam thing, I don't really get. And because... You know, I guess I, I fell, in math, fell in love with math through music and poetry. And so this gets into this thing of, I wonder if part of the, the focus on permanence is somehow related to this focus in culture on, on novelty that comes in, sometimes I call um, science the negative space of art. And there's this, been this big push in, in science and in, in art. And then I, I, I'm a craftsman. I, I studied economics at college, but then I get to study with old, my old favorite magic masters for many years in their 80s and 90s, and it changed my life. And um, so in, a, in a, a late night dinner with like Conway and Joe Cohn and, and um, Sylvan Capel, I, I gave this idea. Are we all getting confused? Is, is the essence of mathematics much more like a craft? And Sylvan Capel said, you know, I think you're really onto something. Because I remember when I was a grad student, there was a grad student spinning his wheels, and he couldn't get it together. And Israel Gelfont yelled at him. He said, don't you get it? Math is not head work. It's hand work. Hmm. Anyway, that, that's, it's kind of a question. <laughs> I've been having this fantasy based on your, reading your blog, because you, said, you cited somebody who said that the... the um, the, the one job that we're going to lose first because of AI is the mathematician job. That was a... Uh, you cited right, it in one, in one of I, your... I, I was not a, a person who said that. It was a study. Right. And it was a study based on the characterizations of jobs by, I think it's the Department of Labor. They have a... And they break down jobs into tasks. And... Um, so there's a list of nine or 11 tasks that make up the job of mathematician, uh, most of which, uh, most of which uh, I've never encountered. Or, uh, <laughs> but that's the, way, that's the way it's understood. So of course, what, what a mathematician is is not just, you know, if, if, if the NSA claims to be the, the world's largest employer of mathematicians, then maybe those people are doing that job, right? That, that, I, that we don't know the number because it's classified. But, the, uh, but it's the largest number, whatever it is. Uh, but, but then the people who wrote this study, uh, who are in AI for the most part, admitted that they did not, uh, that the, they had hired some team of matching uh, the tasks to things that uh, what, whatever AI can do, whatever ChatGPT in particular mm -hmm. can do, uh, and uh, said, "Well, this looks like this this job looks like what something that ChatGPT can do." But they admitted that they were not experts in this field. They didn't talk about mathematics in particular, but they just, nevertheless, they 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 uh, there, there, there is the, the the problem with the study itself although they acknowledged that there could be these problems. And then there was a problem with the, the, the article 
in the press that synthesized this to say that mathematicians are the job most at risk and somebody wrote to me, uh, somebody in New York wrote to me, look, we're the most at risk. So, you know, but that's, uh, but that's not, but is that, that, I don't see how that follows from what Mark's, Mark's question though. So maybe well, it's related to a thought experiment is if math wasn't the gatekeeper subject of our curriculum, then it probably would be more like art. And you could probably convince yourself of that by wondering what would art look like if it was the gatekeeper mm. subject <laughs> of our curriculum. Mm. There'd be a lot of tests on whether you could draw straight lines or I don't know, stuff like that. <laughs> right, yeah, probably. I think it's not just the, the, in the curriculum itself. I mean, the, the example you just gave that all the people that actually uh, work and started the new math with themselves fell in love to, to fell in love in mathematics through geometry. I had this moment, and I, I write about it in a book, and one of the great mathematicians of the kind of mid-20th century uh, called uh, Steenrod, um, and I looked at his paper when he was a student, and it's all diagrams, diagrams. It's all like he's working on these curves. He's like writing these pa really passionate, long letters about these curves. Um, by the end of his career, he becomes known with kind of most abstract algebraic category theory approach, all the diagrams have completely disappeared from his writing. You don't find it anymore. And part of it is, is the incentives of the field itself. Uh, it becomes that the, if that's the dominant within the kind of community, if that's kind of the dominant approach, you, because there's an incentive structure, uh, you fall in line with the incentive structure of the community. And they're, all, they're always with mathematicians, even in the height of Boraki, that we're doing different approach, right, that were kept uh, this kind of uh, um, more geometrical approach or this geometrical investigation, but they were often often relegated in some way. I, I don't know how to quite explain. I talked to I talked to another mathematician who, who was describing to me that uh, uh, his name is uh, Thomas Benchoff. He is, uh, mm. I think he retired from Brown by now. But he he was describing to me. He wrote a lot of books about it. Uh, that since he was a kid, he was fascinated by the fourth dimension. He had this like. He, he, that's something that kept him up at night, thinking about the fourth dimension, trying to think, how can you think about the fourth dimension? Who would build these models, like three-dimensional models, and draw, and did all this stuff? And I remember that I had an interview with him, and he told me that when he was coming into the field, he felt that the way that he was trying to do math had no space, because the dominant approach for the field was much more abstract, uh, and he kinda, it was very hard for him to figure out how to... Um, I, I, that's how we describe it, how to find you know, a place for the sort of mathematics that he does. Uh, so I think there's also kind of institutional um, and structural... Uh, and aesthetic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> As well to all of this, but yeah. There's a story about Chevalier who's giving a lecture in a big uh, undergraduate classroom. About who? Chevalier. You mentioned complained about the Hercule uh, piece. Of the yeah. So he's writing out his his uh, proof of the theorem and don't know which one, and he gets stuck at a certain point and is like pacing and pacing, and turns his back to everybody in the classroom, makes a little diagram on the board, erases it, turns around, and keeps on the doing the proof. And it's obvious, so, right? <laughs> well, excluding himself from the yeah possibility of make, using diagrams. Mm. That's, great. Mm, that's um, true, that's true. Hi, I'm not a mathematician, not a scientist, but in school I really loved math. And um, 
And I I'm from former Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union math actually in high school and middle school was on college level here. Mm -hmm. And um, my question is uh, probably, I'm not sure if you would like it, <laughs> if you like <laughs> this question, about limits of math, in limits of this particular language. For example, you were saying about, uh, some time long ago we thought that s uh, sun goes around earth, now we, but we still say sunset. Yes. <laughs> you see, and in poetry, if you read the poetry, you will never meet explanation. No, this is actually wrong. It's sunset <laughs> is wrong. You see, so, so to um, come to some ideas, we, hear, we have just everyday language. And it's really more permanent, maybe, than math and like separate uh, science fields. And even right now, some people start to say that Maybe we uh, come to too much of calculation because right now we have very difficult relationship with ecology, with nature. Mm -hmm. Should we come with calculations or should we uh, to, to this problem, to like climate change and everything, should we do it more like indigenous people, you see, who try to feel it and try to kind of be together, not separately, and calculate. Or, for example, if you try to optimize uh, uh, and calculate relationship with your children, how it would go, you see? <laughs> so, so what could you say about limits and probably we for example, calculations of CO2, yes, right now people start to say what we should reduce it and then we solve everything and then we come idea of carb, uh, carbon um, uh, storage somewhere and some people say it's, it's a bad idea because it's, we capture it and store it and it's create more problems. So that's uh, how, that's the question about limits. <laughs> Mm -hmm. it, and now, it's how it goes to our relationship with our environment. Uh, I'm so glad I am not in charge of fixing the climate. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, I do math. I do not harm the world. I create more of it, and I communicate with it. And it is limited in that sense. Like, it's this very fundamental human thing. I don't think it claims to be able to solve conflicts between people, like a parent and a child you mentioned. Um, I think the question in, in that sense, essence was like, what have we lost by thinking so mathematically all the time? Um, but mathematics has definitely created, um, there are definitely mathematical tools that exacerbate um, the current climate situation. and. Um, I'm thinking too about the book by um, Kathy O'Neill called mm. um, the um, Weapons of Math Destruction. Weapons of Math Destruction. <laughs> yes. um, so it's not any mean mathematician who has decided to engage these weapons of math destruction, but the practice of mathematics of always um, taking away the context and operating at the level of the abstraction, where context often really matters in the real world. 
when these algorithms, for example, are getting used to determine the lives of teachers and the livelihoods of, of, of people in general. So I, I do think it's related to, to this aesthetic and political issue that we were talking about is, and, and you know, the, the role that math, and not mathematicians, but that math plays in um, allowing us to make generalizations that wreak havoc on contextual issues. You can't divorce away the humanities from the mathematics. Just no. You're trying to build a better society. You need both. An example like the rise and fall of cryptocurrency and uh, who was it? Sam Bankman-Fried. It, it represents like seems like a class of people who are going to maybe create a try to create a utopia by using math, basically. But I mean, math is baked into how crypto works and the blockchain. But they have forgotten about ethics and politics and power structures and justice and everything. So you, I mean, you talk about the limits of what math can do in society. They are definitely there. It is limited. I, you know, your, your uh, comment makes me wonder whether it's ever happened that children have sued their parents <laughs> for uh, bringing them up without calculating on, on the grounds that economic rationality would dictate, as, as, it's, as it's defined by the people who define that sort of thing, uh, would dictate that they uh, base their upbringing on what will maximize their, uh, their, their, uh, their economic, their property as when they become adults. Now, I don't know, I can imagine that that some lawyers would be willing to take on uh, a case like that. And uh, what would be the counter arguments? Because uh, the power is organized primarily by the people for whom uh, economic calculation is uh, the most important consideration. So what would you know what would uh, so that, but I don't think that's the, ma the mathematicians are, are particularly responsible for that. You know this is uh, this is a structure that the mathematicians have provided, but I think uh, and I, I would not be, I don't know that I've ever heard of any children bringing a suit against their parents. But, <laughs> but it's not number and calculation that are the problem. Indigenous people use numbers too, right? So it's a, it's what you said before. I think is the splitting of the mathematics from the ethical questions and. The sustainability question. So, if if you're thinking in indigenous way, you're thinking about well, what are you're working in a collective way and discussing what are going to be the um, consequences of using these mathematical tools in terms of you know other things that we might care about. So maybe it's not so much about mathematics, but the way that we've siloed these different disciplines into you know places that can flourish and become really powerful, but yet not be in, in uh, communication with each other around overall goals. Well, there, I mean, real, there are real, uh, really economists who discount the future uh, and the future effects of, uh, of uh, uh, climate change. You know, they, they calculate that, in fact, it's uh, more economically rational not to do anything about uh, or not mm -hmm. to do very much because if you consider the economic growth in the present that outweighs or you know and building on it, on it then that outweighs whatever consequences it might have for so they, this is this is not purely hypothetical mm -hmm. uh, the uh, 
And, but I'm not, again, it's not, the math, it's not because they're using mathematics, they're using mathematics in a certain way. Mm -hmm. okay. can, well, can I just add one please. thing? Because I, I mean, I think you're right about, it's, I mean, it's not because they're using mathematics, but I do think that um, often with the use of all of these mathematical methods, uh, part of the problem is that because mathematics in our culture is associated with objectivity and with true knowledge, uh, there is an, there's a willingness to, if something is presented in a certain kind of way with mathematics, there's a willingness to assume that this is somehow representative of the truth of something that this is an objective study, even though I absolutely agree with you that it's, it's always limited. I mean, I teach, right now I'm teaching an entire course that's basically on that question, which is trying to show how quantification is, is a limit, is, have changed the way we think about different kind of social problems um, and, it's, and the limits of it. But I think there is something about because math, because the place of math in our culture that then kind of gets translated to also its uses in some way. Because math is related in this culture, you think that ethical consciousness related to math is sort of under, understated, undermined, under thought or something? That's a good question. I don't know if, I, it's not, so this, this is a good question and I'm not quite sure if that's the, the like that's the uh -huh. link, that's the, the causal uh -huh. link. Whether that I think that when we have become accustomed to the idea that if something is represented in a numerical, in a very kind of quantified way, in a way that there's a calculation behind it, we're, we, we, tend, we, we, all tend, we tend to agree that this is somehow a more accurate, a more objective mm -hmm. uh, description of a social problem, let's say. Value-free. It's a value-free, it's value an objective. And I think that as opposed to if I told you about that problem and I will spend and I will tell you about this person, uh, whatever the social problem, and I will tell you stories about it, that will be, that will, that, that's way of narrating a certain kind of problem, the same, the same problem um, has less, less legitimacy than uh, translating the problem to a quantifiable and calculative logics. Uh, and I think that that's the problem, that because, because, uh, because we tend to associate a certain kind of uh, ideas with, with those modes of, modes of reasoning. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, this um, fabulous conversation was now will become part of a permanent record, <laughs> <laughs> or at least as long as you, at least as long as YouTube exists. <laughs> so I'm uh, really so grateful to you all for this amazing uh, talk, and uh, look forward to having you here back again sometime in the future. Thanks so much. Okay.